0: Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana.
1: And I'm David.
0: And today we watched Missing.
1: When an idealistic American writer disappears during the Chilean coup d'etat in September 1973, his wife and father try to find him. I am very curious to see what your thoughts on this movie are going to be, uh-huh. because... I was not familiar with this movie other than seeing the Criterion collection poster for it, but I was familiar with the director,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Costa Gavras, having mm-hmm. seen what's probably regarded as like his best known work, which is a French, quote unquote, production, a film called Z. Mm-hmm. This is a really good movie, mm-hmm. though his approach makes me question whether he Kubrick rules himself by the way he makes movies.
0: Okay, so I liked this movie. Yeah, I do think it is like fifteen minutes too long, just a little bit. There's there's a little. I don't I don't want to say it wanders, but it's it's like fifteen minutes too long. There's some stuff they could have cut out or tightened up. Yeah, we we've established again. Diana knows shit about history. <laughs> no shit about book. Okay, so I didn't really know the details. Or like the conspiracy, like I don't, I didn't know shit about this until I asked like very pointed questions of David, which is why it's kind of good that we watch some of these at home so that I can ask those questions when we like pause or whatever. I did not need that context to understand the story. Yes, that's awesome. So for this movie, it's not a cubic rule. I love it. Which the cubic rule states that if you need context to understand your movie, your movie is not good.
1: I wouldn't call that a hard and fast axiom, but it's a general solid rule.
0: (laughs) It's consistently an issue with Stanley Kubert. Yes.
1: (laughs) That's what I think is so fascinating about how Costa Gavras makes movies. It comes Mm -hmm. up in the trivia here. This is his bread and butter. He makes true stories or stories that are based on real events. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is to thrust you into the
0: middle. Into that issue. Okay, I'm I'm down with that. Dropping
1: you in with whatever context you have or don't. Lots of people may have had context for this because it was a big fucking deal when it happened. Sure. But lots of people may not have known anything about it when they saw it. And his idea here is, if I just drop you in the middle of this, are you going to feel so compelled into what's going on to really dig into the actual meat? Yeah, Fair. He is such an interesting director because of how he decides to make movies. Mm -hmm. And what's really fascinating is we're getting his first American film.
0: Oh, that's this?
1: This is his first ever American film. Okay. We'll get into his background as as we get into stuff. But in the budget section here, I want to give a little bit of the history of this story. Okay. For anybody who doesn't know what's going on, because if you have just a tiny bit of context, it really makes an impact on how this movie lands with you. Okay. The budget for this film was $9.5 million, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem like a lot for how much effort was put into it.
0: I just think about how much time they may have been at a hotel, and that's expensive.
1: Yeah, and I, I read there there's not a whole lot of trivia on this movie, but I believe a good portion of it or a giant chunk of it was filmed in Mexico. Okay so they were adjacent to some of the landscape and styles that you would actually see in Chile. Mm-hmm. Um even though it's a very different place honestly. It grossed total 14 million dollars. This is not a big movie. No. By any stretch of the imagination and wouldn't have been at the time, but it made a real fucking impact.
0: Films like this tend to be that way. They tend to not I mean unless you're going for like something explosive or Um, You're attacking one particular person, like, let's say, Vice was really attacking one particular administration. So it had a very targeted audience, as well as like, we're going to present this in a comedic way, which helps with the delivery. Yeah, the target audience for this is a little vague.
1: Well, here's a theory, is that since JFK... Mm -hmm a sort of government exposé or digging into conspiracy like this mm-hmm. has always been an explosive thing. Like Oliver Stone made digging into the deeper conspiracy, this huge fucking deal. Sure. And since then, we see all the time that these conspiracy movies are these, you know, big giant productions. When you watch movies before then, they're very small because they're th- they're small thrillers. Sure. The whole point is the slow unraveling of the mystery. And, like, what's really cool about this movie, and we'll get into it when we get to writing, is that alongside of that, there is this massively well-told, well-constructed character study as mm-hmm. well. Like, th- this movie is as much a family drama mm-hmm. as it is a conspiracy about the Chilean coup.
0: Oh, I completely agree.
1: And I think that's the most impressive part about it.
0: Agreed. They found an entry point that was an interesting story in and of itself that then helps tell everything else that's going on.
1: And that that used to be the way you did this. And I don't f- it still happens from time to time. There are still movies that come out, but it almost feels like a lost art.
0: Well, I think to a certain degree, these types of conspiracies aren't so much conspiracies. As much as it's these are the facts, and we're going to lay them out to present to you what happened. And when you see it all laid out, it should not require an entry point of a human story to, yeah make it understandable why this is bad, at least I think in the more recent years in terms of like what's being like the stories that are being depicted about real life events. It's like, we shouldn't have to explain to you why this is horrible or why this is horrifying. Like, here it is. Yeah,
1: I, I guess the only risk you run is that you desensitize people from the scale of what's going on.
0: Well, that, that's certainly an issue, but also we already, as viewers, are desensitized. What yeah. I feel like this, I have to think about the time. You know, we didn't have the internet this time and we didn't have this type of media coverage and it's kind of like you know the watergate stuff happened before this and was very explosive Mm -hmm. and that would have put it in people's head that oh the government can do bad shit and the media can choose to expose it or hide it in that instance they chose to expose it and that is also very compelling and so here is another instance where the government our government is doing some bad shit it's not just another country's government that's doing bad shit part of it being another country's government is why we need a through line to get into it because a lot of other people just say oh it's another government who cares well in this story we find out through you know we're talking to Americans we're finding out oh america had a hand in this They are part of the problem. And so I think that is where it's like this problem isn't just at home. It's global, which I know the Watergate was about other things, but also like, okay, here's another story that shows how much we are involved in things that you probably wouldn't like.
1: I'll say, too, I don't think an American director could ever make this movie. Agreed. Because I don't think they have enough of a second half perspective, especially at this time. now. Maybe you could get away with somebody making the story, but it would not have the subtlety and thoughtfulness and craft that he's putting into this story because he wants an American audience to recognize this impacts you just as much as it impacts them. Sure. And um, it made an impact, if not necessarily at the box office, in the echelons of power. Okay. So obviously the backstory here is that in 1973, or just a little bit before that, Chile Elected its first ever socialist president, Salvador okay. Allende. Promised land reforms and you know monetary reforms, and everybody was excited. Like the whole public was behind Allende. The US hated this sure. because we hate socialism.
0: Because it threatens our way of life.
1: And I should say the events in this movie are happening in and around the time Watergate is percolating. Yeah. So this movie, the, the movie's being made af well after that, but this is all kind of going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. We brought in U.S. military officers, as we have so often through history, to come in and support a coup Mm d'etat. A lot of times, this gets dictators involved, and it's bad. It's always bad. But in this case, it was particularly awful, Mm -hmm. because the Chilean government basically just started a mass killing of anybody potentially perceived in opposition. Sure. Like, if you just strayed one wrong way, and we see it in this movie, if you break curfew, you're getting shot dead. Yeah. No trials, no nothing. And it is bonkers how bad it got out there. Mm -hmm. It took a massive effort from everybody involved to finally get Pinochet out of government. And in that time, Pinochet executed between 1,200 to 3,200 people. And interned as many as 80,000 people, torturing tens of thousands. And honestly, we really don't know the real numbers because it wasn't like they, you know, persecuted and killed people and then marked it down. They just disappeared people forever.
2: Mm -hmm. There
1: was no accountability whatsoever. They're just gone. What's really scary is Pinochet's son was just running for president in Chile again. Mm. So, like, this story is still very much going on. Chile said fuck no to that and elected, I believe, another socialist. So it's like, fuck you. So the Pinochet dictatorship Mm -hmm. banned this movie.
0: Of course they did.
1: (laughs) Uh, Until they fell in 1990, this movie would never be seen in Chile. But it apparently got the US government so afraid that two days after its release, then-Secretary of State Alexander Haig under the Reagan administration was forced to issue denials stating that every single thing in the movie was wrong or unfactual or misconstrued. They came out directly to say, absolutely not. We didn't do any of this. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: However, on October 8th, 1999, a State Department memo was declassified and revealed that the CIA had, at best case, played a direct role in informing against Charles Horman. Mm Mm-hmm. And very possibly was directly involved in ordering him executed. Wow. Joyce Horman, who we'll talk about, her name was changed to Beth for the movie, had the memo released to her in the late 1970s, but that memo was redacted mm-hmm. because it was still considered classified. And so it was all but confirmed that they had played some type of role in him getting killed. Nathaniel Davis, the US ambassador to Chile, sued the entire production team for defamation Mm -hmm. for implying that he was responsible. The suit was quickly dismissed. And in 2007, Costa Gavras stated that the then head of Universal, Lou Wasserman, Mm -hmm. was so supportive of the film that he insisted that the studio refused to negotiate a settlement with Nathaniel Davis.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: He was like, this movie holds up. They've done everything they were supposed to do. We'll fight it in court.
0: All right. I like it.
1: Once those lawsuits were thrown out, they actually re-released it
0: Wow! because of
1: the notoriety. And we're like, yeah, this is real fucking shit. And one really frustrating note is that many years after the release of this film, using DNA testing, it was determined that the body shipped back to the US was in fact not the body of Charles Horman. Mm. Joyce Horman is to this day still fighting to confirm the actual truth of what happened to her husband.
2: That's awful.
1: What we see in this movie is terrible and it barely scratches the surface of everything that was going on behind the scenes. Oh, sure. Like, it is wild. Mm-hmm. But that part alone just makes you go, Jesus.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really depressing.
1: It, it is. I think what it's also telling, though, is like, you have to be prepared to fight for this stuff on your own mm-hmm. because if your government is involved in this stuff, they will deny it and fight it every single way they can until the end of time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And even when you have somebody who is conservative, who is just like, I don't care. I don't want to fight my government. They can still fuck you over. Yeah. If it's in their self-interest to do so, they will do it every time.
0: (sighs) Okay. Well, we get that.
1: Okay. Let's talk about the movie itself.
0: All
2: right.
1: The writing of this film, Mm -hmm. comes down to a couple of different people. It was originally a book by an author named Thomas Hauser. Now, Hauser has written tons and tons of nonfiction books on all sorts of subjects. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He wrote a book called Final Warning, The Legacy of Chernobyl, which was apparently a pretty big deal. And then he's written like a ton of books about Muhammad Ali.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Including, I believe, an authorized biography of Ali called Muhammad Ali, His Life and Times. Most of his nonfiction writing revolves around boxing, so that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, but he wrote this book in 1978, just five years after the incident. Okay. And right around this time is when both Joyce Horman and Ed Horman began going public, trying to, to fight for the truth, essentially, just sure. what the hell happened. Then we have Donald E. Stewart writing the screenplay. Before this, he really did a lot of nothing, just some like B-movies. But after this, he wrote The Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger. And the film Hostiles was based on his manuscript after his passing. Okay. And finally, we have Costa Gavras. Costa Gavras is a Greek writer and director. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and give his credits now. He is both our writer and director for this movie, or co-writer, I should say. Okay. All of the movies that he's written or co-written are also movies that he directed. Mm -hmm. We have The Sleeping Car Murder, Shock Troops, Z, State of Siege, Special Section, and Woman Light. After this, Hannah Kay, Family Council, The Little Apocalypse, Amen, The Axe, The Colonel, Eden is West, Capital, and Adults in the Room what do we think of the writing of this film?
0: Oh, I think it's excellent. Um, Like I said, the point of entry is great. And the story itself is compelling. The family drama aspect of it is great. And not one we see very often true. I mean, to be honest, it's very common for us to get a son-in-law, mother-in-law dynamic. We don't usually get the like a father and the daughter-in-law type thing. We don't, which I think is really, really interesting. It's also not overwrought. No.
1: Which at first almost feels a little concerning because you're like, this movie feels like it might be a little boring. Sure. But slowly what you realize is like, no, we want you to feel like the dynamic between these people is very real. Sure. Oh, sure. And that temper, that tempered nature of the script. Mm-hmm. I think is what makes it so, so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because if if Hollywood made this, they would just overwrite it and make it so overwrought and ridiculous. Yes, especially in nineteen eighty two Yes. that's the real like special sauce to the script. Mm-hmm. Even just on its own, it'd just be a really nice, taut, basic political thriller and mystery type thing. but it's it's that relationship drama and all the complications, and then all of the emotional weight behind it that Mm -hmm. makes the movie work really well. The inciting incident of this movie happens within the first 20 minutes. Yeah. And we don't even see it.
0: No. Which I like. I like that we don't see it.
1: Oh, it's perfect because it's a mystery. Mm -hmm. And we have to somehow solve it. And I think the other brilliant part is that, you know, Yes, it's a true story, and so he knows this going in, but he's upfront in the writing of this going like, we're going to tell a mystery that we don't actually get a resolution to. Mm-hmm. And you're going to feel just how unresolved it is, just like they're feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. The, the script by far is, is just brilliant writing, I agree. This is right in his playbook, of course. He worked incredibly closely with both Ed and Joyce Horman. making the movie as well they mentioned right at the very beginning with this very fascinating quote was this is based on a true story some names have been changed to protect both the people involved and the film sure which i think is fascinating
0: (laughs) oh i love that it's just perfect
1: and you know i think one of the biggest things he does is they do refer to some of the military officers by name but a lot of times. He really tries to make them faceless Mm. because they will call them by their title. Sure. Almost the whole time. If they're in an actual official capacity, they will not call them by name. They'll call them by title. And it's this perfect little nod of like, they're not real. (laughs) Sure. In their official capacity, they are not human in the part of this story. Because they're not acting as people.
0: No, I love that. And it also just makes, again, from that, we're going to protect ourselves way. It, yeah. It's just very smart, very and cheeky at the same time.
1: And then just like the the other thing that I think he gets because he's not an American. Mm-hmm. And I'm sh- I think he really brought to the script is that whole thing of they're willing to just say this out loud. Mm hmm. American writers would have hedged on that and really like fudged it to make it more mysterious. And he was like, no, out in the open, these people would say what they were doing in these places.
2: Hmm.
1: They're proud of causing a coup because they were. They were proud of like, you know, ending communism and socialism in places. Mm -hmm. Consequences be damned. But like that little tweak is so important to understand the weight of the story because if you don't get that, then it's just a standard mystery. But when it's like, no, 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 all these facts are just out in the open for anyone to see. The mystery is why you will be willing to buy into their
0: lie. Oh, sure.
1: When Pinochet died in December 2006, Costa Guevara stated that he and Joyce Horman spoke, and they both regretted that The Dictator and Horror Show was never actually brought to justice. Mm. When he was deposed in 1990, he lived out the rest of his life in Chile. And I will never fault a country for that. Sometimes when you get to a truth and reconciliation, it's just like, it is so much easier to not deal with this man if we just get him out of power.
0: Oh, sure. And
1: everybody move on with their lives. Sometimes it's way easier to do that than try to fight all the other crap that would be involved and cause a civil war and shit. But it is frustrating. Initially, Universal wanted the opening scene to read Chile, September 1973. Mm -hmm. Costa Gavras fought it. He said he wanted to force the audience to participate and play detective along with Ed and Beth per him, quote, these things are still happening. People are disappearing all over the world, unquote,
0: Mm.
1: was very intentional that he didn't want to give you context for this story.
0: Oh, I and I appreciate that. I think that's so again, so smart, especially with like trying to make something timeless, being like. It doesn't matter if this is co- completely resolved today. It's still happening other places.
1: Yeah. The, this type of political action is something that goes on all over the world all the time. And if we peg it to this one time and place, you'll ignore what's important about this story, which is that this shouldn't happen anywhere ever. Mm-hmm. And it's very thinly veiled. Like he references Santiago and Viña and all these places in Chile. So if you like, did just a basic level search you'd figure out what he was talking
2: about Mm -hmm.
1: but it's a really nice touch to be like I don't want to throw you in with a whole bunch of information I want you to feel as lost as these people do yeah that's a really wild thing for him to do but it works really well for this movie (laughs) Mm -hmm. so let's talk about his directing again Costa Gavras, our director for this I remember watching Z and also being a little thrown by his directing style at first. Mm -hmm. It's a real different way to do these things. This movie feels a little gauzy Mm -hmm. at times. Some of that is it's 1982. Sure. I almost wish it was a little more stark. But on the other hand, there's something fascinating about it feeling a little dreamy because you start feeling a little lost between like... We're in this interesting, unique place, and we're Americans, and so we're not—we don't quite fit in here. But then, you know, there's a giant helicopter flying out my hotel, and there's people dead in the streets, and it's—it—it really does bewilder you in some ways with the imagery. Mm -hmm. That white horse running along the the sidewalk while the soldiers chase after it, and you're like, "What the fuck is
0: happening?" (laughs) Yeah, that was so bizarre, but it made sense to me in that it was just like. Well, this is just something that's happening.
1: If you want to, you can dig in and find a bunch of metaphor, and it might be there. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's also just, it's pure chaos. When you're in the middle of a coup, that's what it would feel like. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know whether it feels too long. I guess where it feels too long is the very beginning. It feels like it takes a lot of time to get us into it.
0: It does. I I completely agree with that. I. I liked how they played with like showing us something and then we move on to something else. And then we kind of do like a flashback, but I don't think they use that enough. Like, I almost feel like we should have started with the dad at the airport, like coming to the airport. He's already frustrated and because he's already gone through stuff and then it becomes about meeting the daughter-in-law and then it just being like wait what and like y'all are mean to each other i'm totally fine with that we're gonna drop you into the situation i think that would have might have been better to be like oh okay shit's already been happening for a while and then we can kind of then i think it would be a little bit better because he doesn't understand what she's been through and then we as an audience also don't understand at all And then it might make it a little bit easier to get the flow going.
1: For a director whose intent is to drop us into the middle of a situation Mm -hmm. with a lot of confusion, he doesn't drop us right into the situation well enough.
0: He drops us right before the inciting incident, if you
1: will. Yeah. And I, that should have come throughout the course of the movie. I don't think it needs to be any shorter, but it needs to be reorganized.
0: Yeah. Because I, I did like that it became a flashback. Like, oh, yeah, he keep notes of everything. And then we see something that he would have kept notes about. Yeah. And that's good. But I, and I, so I think we should have used that device more. And I think also for an audience dropping in and seeing Jack Lemon being like, okay, which, full disclosure, I didn't realize that was Jack Lemon. At the moment, I was like, <laughs> "I know him. What? Like, I recognize this man, but I don't know why." And David was just like, "Okay, like, who do you think it is?" And I was like, "That's not Jack Lemon, is it?" And David said nothing. I was like, "But like, maybe William Holden? it does kind of look like." It. And then David was like, "No, it's Jack Lemon." I was like, "Oh my god!" Because let's be honest, I have only seen very young Jack Lemon in the apartment, which is to, still to this day the best movie David has ever made me watch. And I've also only I've only seen old jack lemon this is middle young jack
1: lemon is such an understatement He was 35 when they made the apartment
0: young career okay young (laughs) career anyways he was super young by my standards and then i've only seen him like the few things he did before he passed so yeah i i'm i'm letting myself off the hook for that
1: i think that's probably the the one thing this movie would be damn near perfect if we restructured the story to where you are literally just right in the middle of it. Sure. And then you have to backtrack through Charles's story to get Mm -hmm. the understanding of at the end. So one quibble there, which would make a lot of difference, but it's still once it, once it starts rolling, it's so compelling and interesting to watch Mm -hmm. and like, I think that's the other thing is this would reward additional views because there would just be so much to chew on image wise. It's not like the mystery is that compelling, but like there's so many interesting moments that you Mm. can like sit with. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about that cast because it is for our two leads pretty powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And we will start making a return from one of our all time favorite movies. It is Jack Lemmon playing Ed Horman. Before this, Jack did a lot of television. Then My Sister Eileen, Fire Down Below, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Days of Wine and Roses, Irma La Douce, The Great Race, The Fortune Cookie, The Odd Couple, The Out of Towners, Koch, Save the Tiger, The Front Page, The Prisoner of 2nd Avenue, Airport 77, and The China Syndrome. After this, That's Life, JFK, The Player, Glen Gary Glen Ross, Shortcuts, Grumpy Old Men, The Grass Harp, Grumpier Old Men. Hamlet from 1996, Out to Sea, 12 Angry Men, The Odd Couple 2, Tuesdays with Maury on television, and The Legend of Bagger Vance. What do we think of Jack Lemon in this movie?
0: We love him. Holy
1: shit, he's so good.
0: He's so good and he's just so relatable and like he's an ass, but like you very easily can understand why. And he's so judgmental towards the daughter-in-law like when he she showed him was like oh you know it's really easy to live like this when you know you've got a round trip trip ticket home and that's very interesting commentary but at the same time it's just like we weren't playing poor we love living like this, this is how everybody lives yeah. and that's like a distinction these people came to this country because they loved what was happening and they wanted to be a part of it and they believed in it they weren't just like pretending they didn't have a safety net it's just so interesting and it's just uh, very much a generational divide between them and I also just love the moment where he starts to soften towards her and the situation and who his son was he has this wonderful line
1: that he rides between being a conservative white man Mm -hmm. going to this country and you can tell he's he's got this conflict and that he's got that very New York I I'm not a racist, but I'm a conservative thing. Sure. And slowly but surely over time he keeps getting proven how wrong he is about everything. Yeah. <laughs> and even though he is stubborn, his stubbornness is not played for either good or bad. Mm-hmm. It's shown in all sorts of facets of his personality. Like, his stubbornness is both what gets him results with the Ambassadors and also what blinds him a lot of times to the reality that's going on around him in that country. Mm -hmm. Lemon is so well-known as a comedic actor, but people always forget just how good a dramatic actor he was, too. Mm -hmm. He's just so good. He's so subtle. I I love how much he doesn't want to get upset and he will hold it in so deeply until it just explodes he's so good at that (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and I think about that generational thing too that you mentioned there was this really interesting post where somebody idiotic was just like look at how people live in Cuba and somebody was like have you ever thought about the fact that maybe they like having you know this stone oven and they've got these big rooms and they really don't care like have you ever thought about the idea that maybe people don't think it's poverty they actually like what's going on
0: yeah it's also like it was interesting before the pandemic, you know, the trend with people our age buying homes was that we were buying smaller than our parents mm-hmm. because in part we like we don't need a formal dining room and a formal living room. We'd rather have we'd rather use the space we have so we don't need that much space. And then with the pandemic it was like, um, I would like that space so that I can turn it into my work from home office or our school room. So that that trend quickly changed. And so it's part of that where it's just like, not everybody wants a McMansion. Not everybody wants crazy fine furnishings and whatnot. And that's true everywhere. It's not just another country. It's true here. And one of my favorite designers that I follow, she purposely lives in a very small home for her four person family because they didn't want wasted space. So they're very purposeful about things. And I love that thinking and i just love that it's like it's about making the home that you want yeah it's just it's it's just a different way of living which is not bad
1: that actually that scene where they meet back up with carlos and he's got the film Mm -hmm. of charles and everybody there and that this great line that lemon gives of like why did you make this it's like what what are you actually doing with any of this and he Mm -hmm. was like because we could yeah because why shouldn't we because you know, part of this is tied up in the fact that when Allende came in, everybody was hopeful that was like, look, we can finally make the life we want to make.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're going to now support everyone in the society. We're going to have all of the things that we need. You know, We know we're going to struggle, but we're all going to be in it together to make this place something new. Sure. Like That was the hope of what was going on there, and the US government and the Chilean military just Annihilated all of that, Mm -hmm. and so you're getting this glimpse of like, what would it be like to live in a society where you actually got to do things you really wanted to do all the time? Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that they're bringing up to him. It was like we were actually living that, Mm. and that really affects him and how he how he looks at everybody there. It's it's a fascinating thing to watch, and Lemon is so instrumental in making that real. Yeah, then we have. Using her real ass Texas accent. <laughs> yes,
0: she is.
1: Sissy Spacek playing Beth Horman. Before this, she was in Badlands, Carrie, Three Women, Coal Miner's Daughter, and Heartbeat. After this, The Man with Two Brains, Night Mother, Crimes of the Heart, The Long Walk Home. JFK, Trading Mom, The Grass Harp, If These Walls Could Talk, Affliction, The Straight Story, Blast from the Past in the Bedroom. Tuck Everlasting, The Ring Two, North Country, Hot Rod, Four Christmases, The Help. Bloodline, The Old Man and the Gun, Castle Rock, and Homecoming. What do we think of Sissy Spacek in this movie?
0: I mean, she's fabulous. she's goes toe to toe with Jack Lemon, and it's, you know, just two people doing their thing, and it's great. And she's earnest, but also like very fierce. Like, because of where we dropped him, we instantly know why she's pissed and why she's like, I'm not giving them a list of my friends. Nuh I'm not stupid. No. And and that's the other part is that she's playing the knowledgeable person in this scene. And and Jack Lemon's the one who's who's playing naive, truly. And that's what's so interesting, that dynamic. It's just she's she's fabulous. I love her.
1: <laughs> she's amazing. I do love that just as much as he softens to her, she also softens to him. Mm-hmm. Over the course of time, once he finally starts to like grasp what's the scale of what's going on, and she starts to open up and and showing him like, I promise you, I'm not just some dumb kid. We were actually trying to make it and we were trying to live within, you know, what society is here and what's going on. Mm -hmm. I want the same thing you do. I just want to figure out what the hell happened to Charles. Mm -hmm. The the moment between them and the morgue where they're like, oh, let's let's take her out. And she's like, absolutely not. And then he defends her. And <laughs> I was like, no, we'll go look. Fuck you. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: We're not going to take her out of here just because she's a woman. Don't be like that. Like, you really see that, that both of them are working so well together mm-hmm. and have put so much craft and care in how they're doing, working with it together. It just makes it so wonderful and believable. And that's going to be it for our main cast. Mm -hmm. Now we move on to a few r We're going to start with Melanie Mayrone playing Terry Simon. She's been in a bunch of little things, but you would probably know her best as the director of the 1995 TV version of Freaky Friday and the Babysitter's Club. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: She does a lot of television directing now, but she was also definitely a big actor in the 70s. John Shea, playing Charles Horman. He did a lot of television. You would probably know him as Lex Luthor on Lois and Clark, and he did have a little run on Gossip Girl as well.
0: Ah, okay.
1: David Clennan, playing Consul Phil Putnam. That same year, he was Palmer in The Thing, the guy whose blood during the blood test reveals him as a thing. Mm. Jerry Harden, playing Colonel Sean Patrick. He was a longtime character actor. He was in The Firm, and he played Deep Throat on The X-Files.
2: Interesting.
1: Joe Regalbuto playing Frank Teruji. He was Frank Fontana on Murphy Brown.
0: Oh, yeah, he was.
1: Keith Sarabica as David Holloway, uh, the guy with the glasses. Th- the fun note here is that he is pretty memorable to us because he played the police officer guarding the Joker after the, com- the attack on the memorial service. Mm-hmm. John Doolittle playing Dave McGeary. He had a handful of random roles, but of note for all millennials is that he wrote a Goofy movie. <laughs> it's a big fucking deal for many of us.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: And Jorge Rusek playing Espinoza. He was the pit boss in License to Kill.
0: That is so cool.
1: It always comes back to, to Bond. It always comes back to Bond. All right. And finally... There is no extra trivia for this movie, so we will talk about awards. Mm-hmm. Now, we are not going to reveal Oscars, though I will reveal some other awards for this film. Okay. It was nominated for four Oscars. Okay. Best Actor for Jack Lemmon. hmm Best Actress for Sissy Spacek.
2: hmm
1: Best Picture. Okay. And Best Adapted Screenplay.
0: At one point in the movie, I looked at Dave and I said, both of them got nominated, didn't they? Because I could just tell. I could just They're that good. They, and they it deservedly so. Yeah. Um I didn't ask if they went or not. I I really don't look at that, but I'm just watching this movie going. Yeah.
1: These are nominatable performances for sure.
0: <laughs> yes. So, I, yeah, I absolutely called it on that. Good. Okay, great. Yeah. The the best the best adapted writing makes sense. Best picture. It's a small film that makes sense to me too though, because it is really that good. Well, but only five this year. Yeah, no, 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 I get that. But I I do think the State
1: Department's response and the controversy probably made it such a big deal that people went, oh. (laughs) Because when the State Department comes out that hard against you, Mm. and the facts are pretty laid bare in this movie, and people know Costa Gavras to be a director who does his fucking homework, Mm -hmm. I'm sure every one of those people went, oh shit, this is real. Yeah. Now... What I will tell you is that it did win two awards at Cannes. Oh. Jack Lemmon won Best Actor at Cannes. hmm And this is the 1982 Palme d'Or winner.
0: Wow. It doesn't surprise me with Palme d'Or. They definitely have an eye for more in- independent, smaller films.
1: Especially with a director like Costa Gavras, sure. who's al- already very highly regarded. in international film. But yeah, Jack Lemmon also won Best Actor. Mm. his performance is that good i can't blame them i mean to be fair some of this also comes down to whether a film is actually premiering at con and Mm -hmm. it's submitted for competition sure so you know a lot of other movies this year probably weren't actually in competition there this one was because obviously he's a big deal that definitely factors into it but i think that just gives even more credence to the fact that this performance is really worthy And that leads us to
0: ratings. Ratings. Wow. Okay.
1: So for every film that we watch, we have a specified rating system. For this one, man, I got to go with those military helicopters. How many helicopters? That fucking shot.
0: That shot is awesome.
1: It's on the Criterion poster. It's one of the most iconic shots from the film. And it is bonkers. Just being like, I'm going to go outside my hotel room. Oh, shit. The military is right up next to the balcony. Okay. Damn. Yeah, that's nuts. And you just imagine being in that moment of like, holy fuck, what the fuck am I going to (laughs) do? It's neither of our movies, but because I've seen this director, I will go first. Okay. I'm going to go four and a half. I'm going to go four and a half for the reason that we talked about that I really like everything this movie does, Mm -hmm. but it's structured in a way that does not maximize the impact and potential of it.
0: Okay.
1: I think if we restructure, if we reorient the story, then it's like a damn near perfect movie because everybody's doing such a great job but the mysteries kind of subdued a little too much Mm -hmm. and we should have literally just thrown us right in the middle of it so he didn't quite achieve his objective there but it's so well crafted so put together such great performances four and a half
0: yeah I, i i'm gonna agree with that my quibbles are really small things and I really enjoyed it. Like, it was a slow starting film, but I really enjoyed it. Like, I was, um, I found the context great. Um, makes me want to learn a little bit more. Like, usually with films like this, it makes me go look up a little bit of information so I, I can have, like, more factual stuff to go off as opposed to some dramatization. And, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, four and a half, I think, feels good.
1: And I will say to everyone, this movie is not available anywhere right now it it was it was a part of the criterion collection it used to be on a bunch of different places and it has all but just disappeared for the moment.
2: Mm.
1: It does make me wonder with it being 1982 perhaps they're going to do a 40th anniversary of it. So that's okay. that's entirely possible that that's coming. Keep your eyes open. Maybe maybe there'll be a, an anniversary edition of this coming soon since it is 2022. Yeah. And so now another fucking left turn.
0: This is a weird year. I love it. I'm
1: here for it. <laughs> going, going by the release date makes it real weird. We are, um, well, we're we're doing a musical. Yay! Diana, what musical are we doing?
0: We're doing a movie that David has never seen, which I don't know how that's possible at this point in your life. I just don't know.
1: I already hate musicals. Why would I want to watch this
0: one? Your own child has already seen this movie. <laughs> this version of it, too. <laughs> You're watching Annie.
2: Yeah. I'm so
0: excited! It's gonna be so fun.
1: <laughs> uh, Daddy Warbucks,
0: Carol Burnett. We got Carol Burnett. We got Tim Curry. This is gonna be a good time.
1: Boy, howdy! I. Hopefully, this is good. We've had three pretty interesting movies so far, sure. and now we're just going
0: straight into popcorn fare. I I don't see why you're complaining about this, but it's gonna be a great time. So, until next time.